Hi, and welcome to The Mean. I'm Ryan Huber, and with me, as always, is Nicholas Seagraves. Welcome back, Nick. Hello. And today, uh, on episode 19 of The Mean, we'll be talking about SCOTUS, or SCOTUS, depending on how you pronounce it. That is S-C-O-T-U-S, Supreme Court of the United States. We're going to be doing a little bit of a dive into this weird institution that we have, what it's doing, why it exists, and uh, sort of what it means that it exists, what it means for our culture and our society, and uh, what a Supreme Court does philosophically. And no doubt, uh, if you read the news at all, if you're kind of plugged into the political discourse, you may have heard about the passing of uh, Supreme Court Associate Justice Antonin Scalia, Nino Scalia, as he was known to his friends, who was um, 79 years old. He was uh, beloved by conservative jurists and politicians and respected by people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, another associate Supreme Court justice who was quite liberal, um, who respected him for his humor, for his, um, his love of life. He was, uh, as some people say, a bon vivant. He loved joking and eating and going to the opera um, with people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. He was, uh, he is the most influential Supreme Court justice in terms of how law schools uh, read case law and uh, law, law students um, study precedents and Supreme Court rulings. He is the, the most, cons- uh, not the most conservative, but the most influential justice of his, of his generation. And uh, with his passing, in the last year of a presidency, which a lot of people call a lame duck season of, of presidency uh, for a president, this one being Barack Obama, there is uh, gearing up to be a huge fight uh, between the Democratic president, President Barack Obama, and the Republican Senate. Um, and we'll go into that in a little bit, why it matters what the Senate thinks in terms of the next Supreme Court judicial nominee from the president. Uh, but before we get into the fight between the Senate, the Republican controlled Senate and the Democratic president of the United States, Barack Obama, uh, I wanted to get into a little bit of the history of the Supreme Court, why we have a Supreme Court, why we have a judicial branch. And I think that will set up uh, an interesting discussion about why Scalia's untimely passing uh, in a during a hunting trip in Texas why this has kind of thrown the political nation into a tizzy and why it's so important and why it is and will be affecting the presidential nomination race, especially on the Republican side, but also on the Democratic side. Uh, But Nick, I wanted to kind of not make this a monologue and pull uh, you into the discussion in terms of uh, what do you, what do you recall? What do you remember? What do you, um, what comes to your mind when you think about, just the Supreme Court as a thing, as, as someone who's a fairly well-read and educated person, although you're not specifically a historian, what, what kind of, when you think about the history of the Supreme Court, what comes to your mind? Um, I think about the significance of judicial review. Okay. So the, the, um, the Supreme Court gets to kind of say if a law is constitutional or not. Yeah. And how that opens up a, in my opinion, much needed balance mm-hmm. in how government works. Mm-hmm. So the Supreme Court um, is the major 
the major organ for checking and balancing the legislative and the executive branches of the federal government. Yes. Um, I also think that because the Supreme Court uh, members are nominated Mm -hmm. and not elected, um, I think there can be potential downsides to that, but there's also Mm -hmm. upsides in terms of um, they are responsible or at least they should be responsible to the constitution Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. their reading of it, as opposed to being responsible for what Maine wants to come out of an oil deal with. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, I would agree with you and I would kind of give an analogy that is also a political or a government analogy where it's said that the house of representatives, the 435 members of the house of representatives are more like the kids table and the Senate is like mm. the adult, the adults table, you know, they have mm-hmm. to, they have to be a little bit more um, prudent, they have to be a little bit more moderate, they have to be a little bit more patient, they have six year terms rather than two year terms. So you have this, there's this real volatility, and proportionality and representativeness about the House of Representatives, they're, they're very much they come from a smaller district, uh, most of the time with a narrower group of constituents than the senators most of the time. And so they have to be more responsive. They have to run for re-election every two years. And so that is the most political body, right? Because they don't have the protection of a six-year term like senators do. Well, the Supreme Court is like the extreme of that, right? Because of getting a lifetime uh, nomination, confirmation appointment, if you get through the the process, you really don't have to worry about re-election or reappointment or anything for the rest of your life. So lifetime appointments, um, for better or for worse, insulate you from a lot of the political process. Um, so the lifetime appointments of Supreme Court justices lead to like a hyper Senate type of a relationship with the other branches of government. In other words, they have to worry so much less about the politics of things. In theory, they should only be deciding cases and judicial review type precedents based on the merits rather than on the politics. Yeah. And I I think that freedom is what allows them to make decisions that would be difficult for a senator to to make um so i mean the civil rights era and kind of the supreme court coming down and brown v the board of education and basically making segregation illegal Mm -hmm. is something that would have taken i think maybe another decade if not more for Mm -hmm. the senate to do Mm -hmm. Um, not because the senate's like filled with like racist idiots but more so that certain states are and for a senator, and and like you said, more and even more for a house a house of representative person, um, you can't be, you know, a senator from Alabama in the the sixties and fifties and go to Washington D.C. and get rid of segregation if you want to get reelected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, part of your job as a representative and as a senator even is to represent a group of people and their views. And the Supreme Court justices job, once they're confirmed, is to do what they think is right. So that you're you're really only representing a constituency of one is mm-hmm. in certain ways. I mean, this gets into battles over how to read the Constitution and hermeneutics, which we'll get into later. But if you're a strict constructionist or an originalist, 
you're going to be more worried about what the founders and the authors of the Constitution meant when they or when they when they formed it. If you're more of an activist judge or a living, living, breathing document kind of a reader of the Constitution, then it really is more about what you think. It really is more about like what your view of the current state of the application of the Constitution to laws is. Either way, the Constitution is your 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 partner in this as a reader. But if you're more of an originalist or strict strict constructionist, you're going to err to the side of what we call the horizon of the text. You're going to try to say, okay, well, I'm going to try to see what these people meant when they wrote this document. And on the other side of things, um, if you're more of a living, breathing document reader, you're going to try to say, well, I'm going to try to let the horizon of the reader, my horizon, have more of a say because I want this to be a living, breathing document that uh, isn't out of date, that is relevant, that can be applied to this current situation. So I'm going to try to take the principles in this document and sort of apply them, translate them, filter them. So, and Scalia, by the way, was more of the, he was the, like a giant of the originalist school, which is trying to figure out what the constitution meant to the people who wrote it and then try to apply that as, as faithfully as possible to the situations, the cases, the things that, that, that he was dealing with and which often actually not often, but from time to time led him to oppose Republicans and conservatives who you would think would really like him. Um, because sometimes uh, he would come down on the side of the other side of the case because he felt like, well, even though politically I would like this X to happen, Y is actually probably closer to an originalist reading of the Constitution. So, for example, he would um, he would defend people who were suspected terrorists um, from, you know, having their due process eliminated, things of that nature. You know, that conservatives would be like, no, no, we need to get these terrorists. And Scalia would be like, well... Not if you like the Constitution. Yeah. And even though we can kind of label judges, you know, like so-and-so is a liberal judge, so-and-so yep. is a conservative judge. Um, and I think in a majority of situations that probably comes out in their uh, decisions. Mm -hmm. um, and especially when you read their, their opinions. Um, but it, what you just brought up is really true. I mean, these people are at a point in their legal career where they've transcended being lawyers really yeah. being being judges in a lot of ways yeah because this is this type of courtroom is so radically different mm -hmm. than... and we should know it is the most collegial branch of government mm -hmm. like it's not that they all agree like in the in the west wing you know if let's say the president's followers are all sycophants so they're not really colleagues because they're mm -hmm. not really colleagues and let's say in the House of Representatives, everyone's yelling and screaming at each other. And even in the Senate, people are more polarized. But the collegiality is, by the way, just the basic fact is there are currently nine seats on the Supreme Court. Eight are currently filled with one empty, the, the Scalia seat being empty right now because of the, the process. But um, there's nine seats around a table and they have to sit in a room together and look at each other and talk to each other and work with each other every day and argue with each other and agree with each other and disagree with each other. And I, I think that there's something cool about that, that level mm -hmm. of collegiality, that they know each other, that Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia, two very, very different people, were best buddies. They hung out. They went to the opera. You know, she, he, he would go over her house for dinner where her husband was like a chef and would make these great meals and they would hang out and drink wine. And it, there's something kind of romantic, at least for someone who 
I just enjoy education and I enjoy discussion and collegiality. And I just, there's something romantic about the Supreme court for me. Yeah. And I, I think looking at the government as a whole, the things that can seem scary about the Supreme court become less scary. And and, and this does have to do with what you just said. Just give me a moment. Um, mm-hmm. But like, I want my house of representatives to be bickering. Yeah. You know, yep. because that's, that's their job. Their job yep. is like, well, I represent this district in Ohio. Mm-hmm. And if you pass this law that says this certain kind of mm-hmm. electrical wiring is mm-hmm. now under this, you know, like we're going to tax it this much or whatever, mm-hmm. for whatever specific reasons, like mm-hmm. that's the major economic engine of my district. Mm-hmm. So I like, you're giving voices people. And because of that, it's going to be a lot of, um, confrontation and a lot of advocating for certain mm-hmm. things as I think it should be. But it, 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 if you look at it in a bigger, a bigger picture, it's like, well, keep that over there. And then in the Supreme court, I want the judges to be able to listen to each other. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. if, if it was one of those things where it's like, well, we're the four liberals and we're the four, I mean, I don't think, it was exactly like this. And we're the four conservatives. And then maybe there's this loser who we're all trying to like win his favor of Kennedy, which would be a hilarious position to be in. Cause really you are like the diva in yeah. the room. Yeah. Um, it was Sandra Day O'Connor for a long time. And then it was Anthony mm-hmm. Kennedy once she retired and Bush appointed a few people. Yeah. It's, it's, it, I want there to be a baseline level where they can actually have, argumentation mm-hmm. i mean i would love for the senate to mm-hmm. also maybe start doing that again well there um, kind of has to be more trust there because there's mm-hmm. only nine people to blame right yeah if you're one of the 435 people you can just kind of blame you'd be like i'm the only good one here because like because like the blame mm-hmm. gets spread out you know between 434 people like if you're like i'm the only sane judge then you're saying just that these other eight people in the room that you all see and know who they are and are super mm-hmm. famous like they're idiots so you kind of there has to be more of a trust and more of a collegiality even with someone like scalia who who vehemently disagreed with majorities more than uh more than anybody really has in history he was always like when he dissented it was like scathing, but he would do it in kind of a humorous way so that it wasn't like he wasn't. I don't think he was ever saying these guys are idiots. Even Elena Kagan, who is one of the he's, she's the one of the newer Obama appointees who's super liberal. He he respected the hell out of her because she's so intelligent. Um, and, and he said, well, if I can't get someone who thinks like I do, at least I want someone smart. Mm-hmm. So he actually said that before Elena Kagan was was nominated. And that's the kind of spirit of the court, you know, the spirit of the court is if I'm going to argue with someone, at least yeah. give me something. Well, and, and not in terms of just elitism of, I need like a huge intellectual mm-hmm. giant because that's what I am. Mm-hmm. But in terms of just practicality, like you don't want an ideologue sitting in the Supreme court who mm-hmm. is, you know, I mean, this is an over-exaggeration, but is like texting Obama and being like, okay, so what did you want? To, yeah. What did you want me yeah. to say? Yeah. Like you want someone who's going, and not just because that would be really disastrous for a system, but also because it would be really awful for the justices who were interested in actually having an argument. Like I know Scalia gets a bad rap. And I mean, I remember um, when all of this was announced, the onion, which, you know, whatever, was like Anthony Scalia loses, you know, fifty year battle with progress or mm-hmm. something, mm-hmm. you know, or like 
And which is like, you know, it's funny and it's a caricature and I get it. I don't think mm-hmm. there's anything wrong with saying anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, there is an element when he makes statements like that. I, I would like to believe the reason why his dissenting opinions are so A, funny and B, um, not vehement, but like uh, strong. Yeah. You know, he's he's not like, it's because... Hopefully that's what the room was like when mm-hmm. they were talking about it. Like that's well, what I would and like. He on purpose wrote dissents because mm-hmm. he wrote them for the purpose of future generations studying them in law school. Mm-hmm. That he was always thinking about the greater context of legal education, which I think is kind of a cool thing for your Supreme Court justices to be thinking about. Mm-hmm. Like, what is a nineteen-year-old first-year law student studying? constitutional law at Georgetown 25 years from now, what are they going to read? They're going to read this. That's, I just think that's kind of cool. I also wanted to go back to the whole, like we've mentioned a few things just in passing that I think you and I take for granted, but I wanted to go back and unpack them a little bit. And that's like Mm -hmm. balance of power, checks and balances. We want, we want the house of representatives to argue. We want, checks on power. And I want to kind of go back to the philosophical roots of, of that so that we can, when we come back later to the Senate confirmation battle and Obama versus the Republicans, we can kind of like frame it in terms of the constitution of the United States. Um, when it, when it established the Supreme court in 1789 in article three, uh, when it talked about the legislative branch in Article 1, the executive branch in Article 2, the judicial branch in Article 3. And when it it grew out of the Federalist conversation, the Federalist Papers, the Anti-Federalists, um, Madison and Hamilton on one side, Jefferson and others on the other side, arguing about just how powerful the federal government should be, just how powerful the state government should be. And obviously, we had the Articles of confederation before this that didn't do a very good job making us into a country that could actually do the things that the federal government was supposed to do. So that's why we have the constitution, constitutional convention. Um, it's a stronger centralized federal government than the, um, than the articles of confederation provided for. Um, the worldview of these mostly men, almost all men. So the worldview of these men was something profoundly influenced by people like Jonathan Edwards. Mm-hmm. They had a low view of anth- a low anthropology, so a low view of of mankind. They thought mankind, you know, was corruptible, was evil, was sinful, and if given the opportunity, would do bad things to people that they had power over. And so, those are the philosophical roots, kind of this Puritan, Protestant, Calvinist, uh, low anthropology. The roots of our government are in a worldview that's inundated with, except for Jefferson, who is like rainbows and ponies and French revolution is going to end super well other than Jefferson and a couple others on that side of things who had read just way more Rousseau and were very tabula rasa and everyone's great. And if you just get things out of the way, everyone will have a great time. Um, That's a caricature of Jefferson, obviously, but um, most of these guys were really scared of giving too much power to any one person. Mm -hmm. They had experienced that with Kings in England, including King George, that they wrote the Declaration of Independence against uh, all his abuses of power, um, not having representation, not having fair trials, habeas corpus, as you and I have talked about, having to like defend themselves from across an ocean, having all the uh, the Bill of Rights. When you look at the First Amendment, 10 amendments to the Constitution, they're basically talking about stuff that happened to them 
having soldiers quartered in houses, not being able to bear arms, not being able to freely assemble, no freedom of the press, because if you said something against the crown, you could get in trouble. Like this comes from a real historical soil, you know, uh, and, and so the checks and balances that we talk about, including the Supreme Court having judicial review to be able to strike down laws and deem them unconstitutional, the whole Constitution is, is designed contra uh, cable news to not get things done. Yeah. Our government is designed to not get things done because we're more afraid of our government doing bad things and hurting people than we are of our government not doing enough to help people. Yes. And so the Constitution is always on the side of slowing things down, gunking things up, having people fight, having people's natural selfishness fight each other to bring them to a stalemate so that no one gets hurt. It's always been that way, and it's actually become less and less over time as we've tried to, quote, get things done, as we've tried to give the president more power, as we've tried to smooth things out, as we've tried to sort of undo some of these checks and balances depending on which party is in power. And we've actually kind of undone parts of the Constitution through little kind of tricks and laws that we've passed and stuff. And the Supreme, the Supreme Court stands still as the greatest check to executive overreach and to legislative overreach uh, and mm -hmm. to federal overreach against the state's rights and powers. The Supreme Court still stands as the biggest check and the biggest balance against the other two um, branches. And I think that that is something we should celebrate. Oh, Absolutely. And I think in the Constitution, or I don't want to say the Constitution because it's when, just as a point of clarity, when we say things like something's constitutional, we don't literally mean it's in the Constitution <laughs> or that it's explicitly <laughs> stated. Like, you know, everything you just said, the Constitution doesn't actually say any of that yeah i was so talking I, about sort of the intellectual climate out of which the constitution has come yeah and i think philosophically that climate is one that realizes on a political level the problem with authority is isolation you know so the craziest and i think we can see that in our own time the people who stand by themselves and operate Mm -hmm. on a on a just pure power mm -hmm. level dictators um, dictators north korea mm -hmm. the caesars like whatever the hell they started getting into once Pab they were Pablo their... Escobar <laughs> yeah it's these people are in in situations where they it's an echo chamber mm -hmm. so exactly. and i i think people were starting to realize that around that time and the reason why we have this kind of three-part system and i think because of the first amendment kind of the fourth you know the press and criticism of the public and stuff is also protected but uh that's another conversation but the reason why we have the system and the reason why judicial review was something that developed as the president actually got stronger you know mm -hmm. so like the the big controversy wasn't it um was with andrew jackson correct mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and 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 that's where you know you have a president who was quote unquote getting things done by just um not to sound crass but by just doing things well yeah it was po <laughs> it was populism jacksonian yeah. democracy was basically it was he was the first demagogue when mm -hmm. you look at demagoguery Demagogue means someone who speaks to and for the people directly, right? Demo, mm -hmm. Demos meaning people, 
Gog talking about talking. Um, and so you've got this person who is just basically ruling from the grassroots and kind of bypassing all other intermediary checks and balances. So Jackson came in with a wave. He was a general. He was popular. He was he was charismatic. He was awful. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But he's basically like, I'm going to do what I want. Yeah. And because I'm the think, people's champion. Exactly. And I think it, it shows you the, the danger of that. So at the time, the people's champion, the people wanted land. You know, yeah. so that's where you, you get these things where it's like we're sending all these Native Americans to Oklahoma. Never mind. People want to use Oklahoma as farmland. Mm-hmm. So we're going to send them to like God knows where in Florida and like yeah. enjoy the trip. See ya. Um, and at the time, I'm sure the people who are looking to start new lives and make homesteads in Oklahoma, which it sounds so exciting to me, um, were like, yay, like someone's actually getting things done. Like I didn't have to talk to my senator. I didn't have to go through all these things. It didn't take forever for legislation to go through and like then and then and then. Um, but you you eventually get to a point where it's like, well, this is why the the slowing down of the process begins. Mm-hmm. Because I'm sure there were people who were culturally aware at that time, but I'd also say that most people weren't concerned about what Native Americans were going through. Mm-hmm. You know, like that wasn't even on the table for the discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think you you can already see there judicial review started becoming mm-hmm. more and more intense because when you have a executive, uh, the highest person in the executive branch of government making things, you know, the whole species circular thing where he put everyone back on the gold stand uh, on like using gold mm-hmm. and no paper money for like a year. And then like things went crazy and it was like, okay, we're just going back. Like we don't want that type of thing to happen because it's, it's not, it's not reasonable if that makes sense. So I, I mm-hmm. think, it's really easy for us now in a po- in a post postmodern or a postmodern or a mm-hmm. blah 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 uh, environment to look back and we and we throw out words that are like oh in, enlightenment thought and the enlightenment obsession with reason or the enlightenment obsession with absolute truth and we like throw these things under the table. I think that there's a very strong strain of the enlightenment. Yeah, that that normally comes out more in a practical, uh, ethical way. Mm-hmm. Um, that is that is more concerned with making things work than it is with finding an absolute truth. Mm-hmm. So, I, and I think the American system is is a representation of that because it's basically saying. You know, with George Washington, there wasn't like, and now George Washington's finally going to end the debate between federalists and anti-federalists, so we mm-hmm. know what type of country we are. Yeah. And in, instead, the system was created to say, no, this debate will probably continue forever, yeah. which it has, and it has different faces and yep. lingo today. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's kind of like we, looking back on it, we've we decided as a nation to have constant room for disagreement and moving forward yeah and the supreme court's role to go back to the supreme court in my eyes is to be like okay remove the chatter 
just kind of like step back a little bit mm-hmm. and have the people who, in, in my understanding, who we think best represent the American legal system currently in, in our nation, alive today, discuss the validity of a law. Like that is, that's, that, that I'm very grateful for that. I mean, Ryan, the bottom of their pillars at the Supreme Court house, do you know what animal the pillars are on? Please say they're owls. Nope. What are they? Turtles. Nice. It's, they... It's turtles all the way down. Yeah, I remember visiting D.C. in eighth grade and going to the Supreme Court house and seeing all these turtles on, like, everything. Like, there was, like, this little pedestal Mm -hmm. that some lady was, like, handing tickets or whatever, like, checking guns, I guess, whatever the hell people do in D.C. And on the bottom of it were all these little turtles and, like, like, just turtles everywhere. And it's a symbol of, like... It takes forever to get a case into the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Okay? Like everyone yeah. knows that yeah. it takes, it, it can also take, I mean, for me, it's like waiting on their decision to see like what's going to happen with gay marriage. It, there's a part of me that was like, Hey, can you guys just decide? Yeah. But there's also a part of me that's like, thank God they're probably really, really talking this one out. Yeah. You know, like, um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, we should note that the uh, the court's power was pretty limited at first, and then it was the mm-hmm. Marshall the Marshall Court under uh, Chief Justice John Marshall uh, mm-hmm. from 1801 to 1835, uh, during which time Andrew Jackson was was president. Not immediately; it was Jeffer- mm-hmm. Jefferson had just been elected when Marshall he Jefferson probably appointed Marshall. I'm thinking, um, but then Jackson was during that period of time as well, and so um, they really they really kind of asserted their 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 power during that time. And that's when the Supreme court became a real player. And, but uh, mm-hmm. kind of fast forwarding to present day um, and, and talking about Alexander, not Alexander Hamilton, but, um, but Jackson, mm-hmm. um, Andrew Jackson. The problem today is that someone like a Donald Trump, who's kind of Jacksonian in his demagoguery, he's reaching straight to the people and saying, you know, F all these other institutions, you know, forget Washington, D.C., we're going to burn it all down. This Mm -hmm. is about we the people, you know. Um, The problem is that the one change that's really happened with the Supreme Court is, and this is going to kind of frame our discussion of Obama versus the Republicans, um, is that with a few with a few exceptions, like when, you know, people tried to pack the courts at various points, a few presidents tried to do that, including FDR, um, with a few exceptions of trying to court pack and things of that nature, change the amount of justices and, and basically be able to get a bunch of people that agree with you. Appointments to the Supreme Court historically were more about someone's ability to read the law, interpret the law, things like prudence and character, and uh, just pure ability uh, and, and and judgment from a justice. And that, that really changed in 1986, 1987, 1988. Would, would you like to hear the story, Nick? Yeah, I would love to. So basically, for a very long time, appointments had been about the prestige of the person, the accomplishment of the person, the prudence of the person. And then Ronald Reagan tried to appoint a really, really conservative guy who wasn't like the most qualified guy ever, but he was at least as qualified as some some former justices had been. And remember, Reagan was, you know, he swept the nation, you know, kind of uh, he had he had destroyed his opponent in the 1984 election, like he won 49 states, <laughs> like the Reagan. Mm-hmm. I mean, if that's not a mandate, 
um, I don't know what is. And so he just, he just like swept back into office, reelected, very popular. And so in 19, either 1986 or 1987, he, there was a, there was an opening and he tried to get this guy named Bork. It was Robert Bork. So he tried to get Robert Bork. And if I'm messing this up, legal scholar, sorry, but it was, uh, his last name is Bork. So he tries to get this guy confirmed by the Senate. And this is a good time to talk about how presidents actually, um, a lot of liberals these days are yelling and screaming about how Obama has a right to appoint a Supreme Court justice. That is not true. No president has the power to appoint a Supreme Court justice, just Mm -hmm. to be clear. The president has the power to nominate and the Senate has the obligation to advise and consent or not consent to the appointment of a Supreme Court justice. So when Scalia died a few weeks ago, now the, the president has the right to nominate whomever he wishes. The Senate, which is controlled by Republicans because of the last few elections, uh, the country reacting against the Democrats, the Senate controlled by Republicans has, they can do whatever they want. They can hear a nomination. They can not hear a nomination. They can say, you're a lame duck. We're going to wait a year. They can vote. They can not vote. They can do whatever they want. Contrary mm-hmm. to popular belief and popular media outrage. Um, but this all comes back to this Bork thing. Before Reagan nominated Bork, it had almost always been easy confirmations if the person was qualified. Bork was a little less qualified than most people, but he was a known, very conservative nominee. And uh, Democrats in the Senate were not going to allow Reagan to have his way with, an, with a conservative justice. They just weren't going to do it. So they actually held out for over a year. For over a year, they basically blocked Bork's nomination. So that, and this is almost unprecedented. Reagan had to withdraw Bork and submit a more moderate justice. Do you know who that justice was? Um, did it start with a K? Yes, it was Anthony Kennedy. <laughs> and so Kennedy then was, 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 went through, you know, because he was so much more moderate than Bork because they were, everyone was tired of fighting for over a year, like a year and a half. Um, Kennedy was, uh, confirmed by the Senate in 87, 88. That was like the process, uh, in, uh, Reagan's final year as president. So today Democrats are arguing, well, look, like Democrats confirmed Kennedy for Reagan in 88. Like, why can't you guys let Obama, you know, have the same courtesy? Mm-hmm. Um, and well, the, the, the hidden kind of like eyelash batting that's going on is we're going to just ignore the fact that Reagan nominated someone almost two years earlier and totally got stonewalled even before he was a lame duck, um, which the Senate had totally, the Democrats in the Senate were totally within their constitutional rights to do that. And the Republicans mm-hmm. in the Senate today are totally within their constitutional rights to do that. But what that started, what the Bork, anti-Bork Kennedy thing started was, all right, now it's a political fight. Now it really yeah. is political. Now every single nominee to the Supreme Court is always political. It, not that it wasn't before, but now it's political to the extent that it's never been before. Um, in the last 30 years, um, it's gotten every single nominee is almost there's some kind of litmus test and you're trying to see what's going to happen. And you're going to try to stop it. If you're part of the opposition party, you're going to try to stop it. If you, if you are opposing the president, you're going to try to stop it. So every single appointment since then has become this kind of if the Senate is in the hands of the opposite party as the president, they're going to fight it tooth and nail. Uh, in 1992, Joseph Biden 
at the time a senator, gave a rousing speech about not considering not considering any nominee from George H.W. Bush because it was an election year. He was a, maybe a potentially lame duck, even though he was only at the end of his first term. And, you know, Bill Clinton was running for president and running against George H.W. Bush. And so Biden said, hey, uh, we should just wait until after the election to to do this whole thing. So there's precedent there. Um, there's precedent from Senator Barack Obama, uh, who said towards the end of the term of George W. Bush, we should not even consider any more nominees from this president. We should wait um, until there's another election. Uh, who ran for president in 2008? Um, God. Who was that? I don't even remember. Who was running for president? Oh, it was I'm... Barack Obama. It was Barack okay. Obama. Okay. Yeah. So at the time, a year before, within the, the previous year, Obama had said, you know, we should really wait until the next election, you know, to, you mm-hmm. know, just in case anything happens, because there were some older justices at the time, we should not confirm. He said the Senate should not confirm anybody that this president, this lame, he didn't say lame duck, but he was basically saying this lame duck, George W. Bush presidency, we should not mm-hmm. confirm anybody who he nominates just in case anything comes out of it. So you have Biden. You have uh, Obama, you have others, basically, uh, Ted Kennedy made a similar statement. So basically, it's become a power politics play. The party that controls the Senate in opposition to the president always kind of says, you know what, we should probably wait and just let the people decide in the next election. The party that controls the White House always says, how dare you? This is the right of the president. They should be <laughs> able to get somebody through. This is totally disrespectful. And if that president happens to be black, then it's racist. Which is uh, which is this time around? It's like well, which is, this is true. Which is true. So <laughs> moving on. Moving on. Yeah, as we all know. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So basically, long story short, this has become so politicized now that it really is just bald power politics. Whoever has the right is going to use the right. They're going to do it to stick it to the other person. No conservative wants Antonin Scalia's seat to be filled by a liberal. So I can almost guarantee you that the Senate is not even going to have up for a vote any of mm-hmm. anybody that Obama might nominate in the next few months. And that's going to obviously be a big talking point for the rest of the um, political season from now in February all the way to November. So it's going to be something that's not going to go away. Democrats are going to rage and scream just like Republicans have in the past. And Republicans are going to sit smugly and say, well, you shouldn't have changed the rules in the Senate, Harry Reid. Congratulations on that making it easier for them, for the party in power to, to stop things from coming up for a floor vote. Uh, and basically the checks and balances are going to kind of work. And, you know, if Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders wins the election in November, they'll get to appoint the next Supreme Court justice and it'll be a liberal. Yeah. Or, you know, if, if the Senate is still controlled by conservatives, which I imagine. Well, that's, it's yeah. upper that the Senate's really upper grabs this, this yeah. So we'll see. So it depends. Um, but let's say it is, you know, it can't be at a deadlock, you know, mm-hmm. like it can't be, okay, so Bernie is in power and Bernie wants to elect or uh, nominate rather, um, mm-hmm. some crazy Marxist from Puerto Rico mm-hmm. who it, it's never lived in America before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if any of those people exist, but let's mm-hmm. just say there wasn't, um, and let's say the Senate was House, uh, Senate was Republican controlled again, mm-hmm. and they literally would not do anything for four mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. What I hope that would do is a repeat of the Kennedy thing, 
Like, I hope it would be, okay, well, I want to get this nomination out, so I'm going to find someone more moderate. Yeah, like, and that's what the, would happen. And, like, yeah. honestly, even if you have a, a lead in the Senate, it is risking the death of your political party to hmm. take on a first-year president. president yes. will never be more powerful than he is in his first or she is in mm-hmm. her first hundred days. That's when you can get things done. That's when you have the mandate. You have the people behind you. And um, I don't think it's ever occurred that a president with that kind of mandate in the first year or two of their presidential term uh, didn't get one of their top choices through. Because it's just, I mean, the Republicans controlled the Senate. I believe the, the Republicans controlled the Senate with with one of, I might be wrong. I'm not, I don't want to say that. Um Here's what I know. Historically, even if the other party controls the Senate, you get your nominations through if you have a mandate. Mm-hmm. It's only when presidents are lame duck when they're within the last year or so of the presidency and there's a big election coming up. That's the only time that these things have been said by either side. Like, I've never heard of a serious leader in the Senate saying, hey, you know, like this president that just got elected, we're never going to confirm any of their of their yeah. judicial appointments. Well, it would just look so ch- it would look unbelievably childish mm-hmm. because. Yes, I want the legislative uh, branch to be kind of bickery, you know, mm-hmm. as we said earlier. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I don't want it to be a, like, weird, silent area of, like, no, we're not working together. Like, I think that's, I think most people would say, I don't think anyone would feel like that's doing anything great. Mm-hmm. And like yeah, you have people, usually the leaders of the parties in the Senate, like someone like Harry Reid is the minority leader in the Senate for the Democrats. Mitch McConnell is the Senate majority leader for the Republicans. They tend to be more moderate because that's leaders of parties tend to be more moderate because you have to mm-hmm. put together coalitions. And so when Mitch McConnell, who is a fairly moderate Republican, actually most conservatives would call him a sellout and even a rhino you know, Republican mm-hmm. only. when he says he's not going to consider any floor votes for a judicial appointment, like, you know, that it's not going to happen because this isn't coming mm-hmm. from, from the, the right wing of the Republican Senate caucus. This is like coming from Mr. Moderate turtle face himself. Um, he's basically like, well, you know, there is a presidential election going on, so we're just going to let it happen. I mean, Scalia is really the one to blame here. He died at a very inopportune time. Mm-hmm. Idiot. But, I mean, we should be grateful to him for an interesting podcast topic. That is true. That is true. Well, I, there, there's another thing I wanted to talk about, too. Um, and it has to do uh, with the gay marriage case. It also has to do with, um, I always forget their name, uh, Citizens United. Is that mm-hmm. it? Yeah, Citizens United. And the gay marriage case was o- Obergefell. Yeah. Um, and, and those certain things. When they were happening um and what it came out as uh, by the way can i just say about citizens united yeah the proof that citizens united was probably a decent ruling is that jeb bush despite having all the super PAC money in the world was not able to secure the republican nomination so citizens united allowed super PACs to basically raise unlimited amounts of money he had over a hundred million dollars in super PAC money guess what didn't help even though he was my favorite guy on the republican side it didn't help because if the people don't want to vote for you it doesn't matter like think about you nick think about it you're Mm -hmm. living let's say you're living in iowa 
Okay. You're living out in Iowa, and it's caucus season. Yay! So I killed myself like two years ago. <laughs> exactly. But, yeah. Every yeah. single commercial, every commercial is a political ad for the for the month leading up to uh, the elections. Mm-hmm. It is hell on wheels. Eventually you're going to ignore these ads, right? Eventually yeah. you're like any thinking person is going to be like, Oh, I hate this so much. I hate everybody. I hate every single person that puts out these ads. There, there is a very real ceiling to the damage that television ads can do in a political campaign, especially super PAC ads, which can't really be for a candidate. They can only kind of be against something or an issue. Um, they're, they're restricted in how coordinated they can be with the campaign and all that. So even though you can raise all this money uh, because of citizens United and you can put it into these super PACs, um, Carl Rove's super PAC has failed the last couple election cycles. Jeb Bush's super PAC, the most powerful, well-funded super PAC, failed. Um, Bernie Sanders is giving Hillary Clinton a run for her money with, like, donations that average $27. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's his big thing that he wants everyone to know. He is microfunding his campaign. Barack Obama won by doing a combination of the two, but he was getting donations all over the place when he beat Hillary and then John McCain and then later Mitt Romney. So, mm-hmm. so although money is corrupting and I, I'm actually more concerned about lobbyist influence and special interest influence in, in Washington than I am about super PACs and Citizens United, um, yeah. although money is corrupting, it can't completely determine who people are going to vote for. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. And more importantly, it's not their job. I mean, mm-hmm. that's what I was going to say. I think when when I read about this stuff or when someone I remember someone asking me, I was in uh, I think I was still in college at the time of the, the gay marriage discussion. But people were like, what would you want it to be? You know, like, what what, what would you want the Supreme Court to say? in this thing. And, and I, I basically said, well, I want the Supreme court to do thing to get rid of things, which I do feel like are not constitutional, which is like someone getting fired for being gay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's protecting somebody's constitutional rights. Yeah, yeah. Like someone not being able to like live in certain areas and things like that. Like I would love for them to put something like that on on paper as a president. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that gay marriage from the bench wasn't really what I was looking for. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really, I mean, I'm happy that, you know, now on a federal level it's and on the state level, basically like mm-hmm. their gay marriage is legal mm-hmm. everywhere. It would, it would have been culturally more powerful had it come from more this, democratic means is what yeah. you're saying. Right. Yes. And, and, and I'm not saying it's not wrong. And I don't think they did anything wrong because they're basically they're basically overturning DOMA, which was a federal thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, there there is a side of me that I was like, it would have been more powerful if it would have came from a legislative side, you know. It would have it wouldn't have been something that, and this is what I'm really thinking, it couldn't have been something that really really hyper conservative people couldn't put on their little list of like things that are taking my freedom away. Yeah. You know? Yep. So it's, you know, like no one voted for this. No one did mm-hmm. any of that stuff, which I don't even think is the right way to do it either. Um, but it, I think yeah. the weak, the weakness is it came down to one guy, Anthony Kennedy, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. there was four on one side yeah. four on the other. And Kennedy was like, you know, I feel like these people should be able to be part of this institution called marriage. And like, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's wrong or right. I'm just saying it's not as culturally powerful as other ways that it may have been decided yeah. like and one dude not, 
Yeah, and it's and, and just to clarify, that's not me being like, man, I'm not happy with this, and I wish like I wanted to get more attention out of this, but it is something to say. It's exactly what you said, and then now I see things where it's like you're just you know the Supreme Court just decides how my community is going to live our lives and whatever. However, people also said that after they ended segregation. Yeah. Um, so there's that, uh, yeah. but like yeah. it's. It's it's like a it's a fine line. It's a fine yep. line between legislating from the bench, which I am not interested in them doing, mm-hmm. and also kind of being uh, the advocates mm-hmm. for personal rights mm-hmm. um, on an I, abstract level. You yeah, know? I do want them to mostly be naysayers. You know, I do want mm-hmm. them to mostly be brakes rather than gas. Mm-hmm. Um, so with stuff that I support, I have to be patient. With stuff that I'm against, um raring raring for them to strike it down um you know i i think the government should spend less money than it does i think a balanced budget would be helpful um but i don't want the supreme court to impose a balanced budget reading of something in a court and then go okay federal government you have to i'd rather have it come from either an amendment to the constitution or a weird convention of the states or just a plain old congress decides to get its act together um i you know i don't want it to come from nine people who go, hey, we decided this really great law and we're going to kind of implement it through judicial review. Um, I, I'm not for it. I don't want that kind of... Yeah, kind of well, rule. in reality, it, it's what you said. They are, the, they are the best naysayers in our country. They, yeah. Judicial review is really only the power to say no. Yeah. And, and, and as we know, um, that's also saying yes in some ways. Yeah. So, and, and that's what made the gay marriage thing in, in a weird place. It's like, because DOMA was something that was officially legislated, legis- yep. Yeah. Yep. as officially legislated, it then opened itself up to someone being like, well, or the Supreme Court being like, well, we find this unconstitutional. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's only, it's only because, you know, this is actually interesting for people who are mm-hmm. anti-gay marriage. That was a misstep by them. DOMA was a yeah. misstep because it like you're exactly right. It's only once someone puts a positive and by positive, I mean, you're trying to instantiate something, mm-hmm. a positive proposal out there that the Supreme Court can do anything about it. Yeah. If there was no if if culturally we just didn't do it, you know, there would have been more problems, you know, mm-hmm. as as the game movement became more uh, transparent and mm-hmm. uh widespread i think mm-hmm. the amount of people asking for marriage license would have had to have been addressed by some type of legislation yeah but it wouldn't because, have been sweeping like like it was no it wouldn't have been something where it's like the federal government does not recognize this period which also created don't ask don't tell and mm-hmm. like all the other things that set mm-hmm. it up for these cases to mm-hmm. get in um and then once they got in because that was the only thing kind of holding it back mm-hmm. it then became le- it became quote-unquote legal mm-hmm. but only because it became legal not because we legalized it but because we made it not illegal if yeah. that makes sense yeah so yeah and i think um, that's a i mean i think it's a good reminder if you're really mm-hmm. passionate about a cause whether it's about being against gay marriage or for abortion or whatever mm-hmm. like there's almost always this thing that happens is when you win a victory there's there's overreach Mm-hmm. And I think like getting George W. Bush elected and having two a conservative Supreme Court justices and like back in the day when there was a religious right doing all that stuff during the mm-hmm. 
the H.W. Bush and Clinton administration and getting DOMA and all these things, that's overreach. Like, that, it, that's, that's overreach. And I think where we're seeing overreach now is among gay marriage advocates who aren't content to have their the rights that were upheld in Obergefell, but now you're having like people go after Christian bakers and things of that mm-hmm. nature. And the libertarians in, in the nation, which are becoming a more and more uh, powerful voice, like libertarians used to be like some guy living out in the woods, listening to, you know, Ron Paul tapes from 1978, um, you know, on, on, on short, shortwave radio. Mm. Um, but now like libertarians are like a real group of the electorate and they were totally for gay marriage. They were a hundred percent for gay marriage because they were like, I'm fiscally conservative. I'm socially liberal. I want these people to be able to live their lives the way they want to live them. But now, now that the gay, um, marriage equality movement has won the people who still want to keep fighting and kind of like extend that victory to like Mm. kind of making it so that businesses have to kind of do certain things, even though they don't want to libertarians are flipping like quickly, like within a year, most libertarians have flipped from the, okay, now we've gotten gay marriage legalized thing to we're going to protect, even though we're, we're not an overwhelmingly religious group, we're going to protect the individual rights of religious people to not have to participate in things that they don't want to participate in. So it's going to be really interesting as Supreme court cases start to come up in the next few years about this side of, of the issue. Yeah. Once again, I think that shows that overreach is corrected by the Supreme Court because I'm pretty sure that religious freedom is going to be upheld by the Supreme Court just in the <laughs> same way as the individual rights of gay people were upheld by the Supreme Court. Absolutely. So it, it is a defense more than it is an offense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think asking uh, state governments to create legislation that enforces um treatment of lgbtq people is falling into that problem that happened with doma it's like you're what you're doing right now is you're you you think that you're going to legislate this law and then it's going to and then all the problems are going to go away Mm -hmm. but if this law gets overturned because it's not constitutional which it really isn't i mean this is really weird but like it's not it's not unconstitutional to own a McDonald's and say, I'm not serving black people. Yeah. You're not going to be in business very long. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, your business will shut down and everyone will hate you. Yeah. And you'll probably lose your franchise. I know for sure you'll lose your franchise license. But it's not strictly unconstitutional. But like the Supreme Court can't say, I mean, I'm sure everyone on the Supreme Court is like, wow, you're an asshole. But they're not going to be like, well, part of our constitution is you have everyone, there's like a mandated level of like respect mm-hmm. and propriety. Well, I think um, we're getting to a really interesting philosophical thing. It's the difference mm-hmm. between positive and negative activity. Mm-hmm. Like most people want to just live their lives, right? Some people want mm-hmm. to impose their morality on others. That's fine on both sides of the fence and every issue and everything. But like mm-hmm. the Supreme Court and other things like it can only respond to positive activity it can't like and and on the flip side the constitution only protects you from stuff happening to you basically mm-hmm. like it does like I, i'm not i'm not doing a very good job explaining this i need to be a little bit more um specific so the mcdonald's person right mm-hmm. they can't be forced to do things yeah 
they can only be forced to not do things. Right? You can't be forced to participate economically in something. I mean, you can. I mean, all of these generalizations have exceptions, by the way. (laughs) Um, But if you're a McDonald's owner, like, constitutionally, people can't make you sell things to other people. Yeah. Right? But they can stop you from, like, selling poison to people. Yeah. So so it's like the positive negative activities and the, the Supreme Court acting as a brake rather than an accelerant most of the time and laws most of the time making it so that they're actually protecting people against the actions of others. I mean, this is a very mm-hmm. legal philosophical discussion, but what it actually means is that if you try to make people do certain things, that opens the door for them to start a, a, a court case that may may eventually, eventually get to the Supreme Court, which may eventually strike it down as unconstitutional. It's when yeah. you try to force people to do things a certain way. Yeah. And, and, and by in doing that by uh, trying to legislate it, you know? Yeah, yeah, through so legislation. For me, for me, I mean, the issue that we're kind of, the big one recently that we're kind of, ta- that we've been hitting on is um, Indiana and what, they're going to do about you know the issue of serving uh queer people you mm-hmm. know? and initially because i went to school there i was like i heard about this i was like oh my gosh like i don't like that like i don't like that idea like, what we're really know, talking like, about is the religious freedom restoration act right? yeah exactly yeah. Yep. and it's like i don't i don't like that i don't want to like go and like get a you know a pizza and be like, no, you can't because, like, you're me or whatever. Mm-hmm. Which, first of all, after I, like, calmed down for about a minute, I was like, okay, so that that's actually not what's happening. Not, not exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then... And then and it has he, mostly to do with, with religious ceremonies. It has mm-hmm. mostly to do, like, if you, if you wanted to marry a guy and you guys wanted to have a pizza place cater, which, like, what gay couple would have a pizza place cater yeah, running? Like, first of all. Culturally, that just seems more yeah. like a lesbian thing than a gay thing. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I hope that that's not too insensitive to say, but most of the gay guys <laughs> I know would not want to have their wedding catered by a pizza place. Yeah. But anyway. Both human beings I know wouldn't want that. Yes, so okay, that's better. That's yeah, better. Yeah. Which I guess the sub the imp, the implied premise is that lesbians aren't human beings. Please, no. I, okay. No, we love our lesbian <laughs> friends. Sure. Anyways, keep going. Yeah. So, like, I'm just saying, the Religious Restoration Freedom Restoration Act was basically about people being able to say this economic activity violates my conscience and therefore I want the the right upheld for me to not participate in this thing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't actually like denying even denying gay people service. Um there was another case in Oregon where someone was told like hey we want you to bake this cake. It was basically people trolling these conservative people and saying mm-hmm. like we want you to bake a cake that says yay for gay marriage or something like that yeah which is speech it's political speech so like trying to force someone to to produce political speech in the form of their business a cake of you know bakery um that they disagreed with so that's probably going to be one of the ones that gets to the supreme court i would think that yeah well well, that's ridiculous like and and i think what i'm trying to say is i don't need people to go into Indiana and 
make a law that says, no, you have to do that. Because first of all, it's a Pandora's box of just, okay, someone goes into a store now and says, hey, I want you to make a cake of the last lynching ever in America that happened in Marion County. Mm -hmm. And I want you to say, great times, good oldies on the bottom. Magic 102.7. Yeah. Like, and like, obviously someone would be like, I'm sorry, sir, I'm not doing that. But could that person then be like, well, you actually can't say no to anything I want on a cake. Yeah. And that's really what's at stake here is the ability of people to not participate in political speech or in religious ceremonies that they fundamentally don't don't agree with. Once Mm -hmm. again, neither of us are arguing that these people are good or right. Like, that's that's not the argument. I mean, if Mm -hmm. I owned a pizza place, I'd sell pizzas to anybody. If I owned a bakery, I would I would sell cakes to anybody. I might not put political messages I disagree with on cakes. I might say, hey, you're mm-hmm. going to have to get someone else to ice this cake, but feel free to yeah. buy this cake. I, 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 For me, the point of a business is to make money So yeah. and to serve your community. So for me, I wouldn't be locking, like even if I was a virulent racist and I owned you know, a McDonald's, I would still want everyone to come buy stuff from my McDonald's. So you could make money. So I, I can yeah. make money. So on both sides, it's weird. And I've had this conversation with a few people and I've, I've almost gotten them to say, well, then the, the state government of Indiana should have like, I mean, they wouldn't say this, but doctrine, you know, yeah. <laughs> like yeah. there should be a state doctrine of like, this is what we have to believe and say, these are the issues that are okay. And these are not mm-hmm. like, you know, you do not have to make a cake that has a swastika mm-hmm. on it, mm-hmm. but you do have to make a cake that has like, a rainbow flag and that's literally and and mm-hmm. we're gonna like start legislate like speech codes yep. yeah and so like from on on my end it's like i don't want this it's like if you're not gonna sell a cake to me for my great gay wedding in indiana then oops like wow okay you're i don't really like you as a human being mm-hmm. probably but like well and one of the things you and i yeah. have talked about where this gets kind of iffy is if you're in a small town, if there's a very mm-hmm. limited number of people that do things, and if there's enough sort of bigots in a town to make sure that you can't have a wedding at all, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Like or that's, Mormons in 2004. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. like to ensure that like you just have no options at all, like and you get totally shut out. And in that mm-hmm. case, it does get sticky, and it does get like you know it makes us, you know, it makes us feel really bad. First of all. When, when we have compassion for someone, even if they disagree with us or we disagree with them, yeah. it's like, oh, man, you live somewhere where, like, you're actually getting shut out of certain being able to do certain things. And it sounds kind of heartless to say, like, well, maybe you shouldn't live there. <laughs> like, if, if, if everyone in that town actively hates yeah. you enough to shut you out of economic activity, maybe you shouldn't live there. But that's callous. That doesn't sound compassionate. Mm-hmm. So so really the best thing we have going for us as a, as a society is the ability to um, – have enough people on each side of side of an issue so that you don't run into those situations as much. So whether you're pro something or against something, whether you are trying to get a law passed or not, I think we can agree that it's nice to have the Supreme Court around to kind of uh, strike down the most egregious um, violations of people's constitutional rights. Um, Nick, if you had to walk away with something what's your takeaway from the supreme court the idea of the supreme court the history of the supreme court the current battles between republicans and obama appointments um 
when you walk away at the end of the day, what do you take away from the Supreme Court as a as an institution and as as an idea? Mm-hmm. It's the value of abstract thinking. Um, I think with the Obama nomination and the drama around that is an inability to remove oneself from concrete circumstances. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. let's be really charitable to both the Democrats who want Obama to be able to nominate who he wants mm-hmm. and to conservative bakery owners in Indiana. Mm-hmm. It's easy for us to sit here and say, well, if you look at the history of these issues, then you can see that it's really complicated and like, um, this and this and that. Mm -hmm. But on a personal level, if you really believed that homosexuality is a corrupting influence on society Mm -hmm. and you bought into the whole, that's why the Roman empire fell. fell, Yeah. Yeah. And if you really believe, which this is true, um, to a larger extent that Supreme court justices and their political stances have a gigantic impact on on 30 years of legislation yeah you know um you you i think there's a temptation in those people to say well i want to kind of bend the rules because it'd be better you know it's almost like the mean the ends justify the means. yeah yeah in some ways but because we're being so concrete like if we could just get the supreme court justice to go through then when a trans person issue comes to the Supreme Court, like we know they'll be on our side. And if the immigration mm-hmm. issue comes to the Supreme Court, I'm like, you know, I am a Hispanic Democratic senator and I I personally talk to families who are harmed by immigration policy and I want Obama to put someone in there who will be on my side for this because I really, really think it's true. I really think it's good, it's right. All of that's great, but it's not the point of the Supreme Court. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. The point, it, on an abstract level, if someone was sitting in the exact opposite side of your shoes, so a farmer in Amarillo, Texas, who's like, I've seen immigrants come in here completely change our economy, yeah. change how my family lived their life, my son, we couldn't afford to get him to go to this college because we've taken so many economic hits mm-hmm. and whatever. And I really want Obama to not nominate someone who's going to side with them on the immigration issue. And, and if they were in control, you wouldn't want them to do that. Yeah. So it's, it's an ability to step back and be like, even if what you believe is right, which you think it is because you believe it. Yep. Really try to think what it would be like on the opposite side and how the process of our government works. Would you want those people to be able to do something like that? Mm-hmm. And, it, and I think that just requires a broader view of, of, of process and mm-hmm. how our country changes. And it's what you brought up with like part of the issue of this, even the, the, the struggle the Democrats in the Senate are going through right now is they cut their own hands off in a way. Yeah, they by, change cycles. By, yeah. yeah, by making policies when we had a, a Democratic-run legislative body and saying, oh, we're going to put all these stipulations into a minority, bringing something to a floor vote, i.e. a nomination, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, 
at the time, I'm sure, it was like, this is to get all the Republicans to stop doing mm-hmm. all these stupid laws mm-hmm. to try to stop Obamacare, which is really, really good and is helping so many people. But now it's, oh, well, they are blocking us from doing what we want to do. And it's because they thought too concretely about Mm-hmm. their current situation that's yeah. what i would take from it yeah, yeah i agree with you i, I would i'm going to take a slightly different angle but i think i'm talking mm-hmm. about the same thing it's means really do matter when you're talking mm-hmm. about means and ends when you're talking about the way process matters the rules of the game matter um the thing that people respected even people who disagreed with scalia most of them the thing that they respected about scalia so much was that he was really concerned about how things happened, the process that was taken, the means of the decision-making. Sometimes mm-hmm. he supported sides of cases that ended up doing things he disagreed with because yeah. he wanted to read the Constitution faithfully. He would say, well, I don't want this terrorist person to go free, but this is what the Constitution demands of us. Mm-hmm. I think that is Scalia's legacy. And I hope I have a similar legacy and you have a similar legacy that we can uphold fair and just and right and prudent and wise processes, even when they produce uh, results that we disagree with or that we wouldn't want to see. And I think the big shift in politics over the last 40 years, and I don't pretend it was all gentlemanly before that, but the big shift has been, it seems like more and more people just want the results they're looking for, and they're not as concerned about just or fair or wise processes, processes. Um, and so Scalia, to me, represents, uh, his death represents the death of the person on the Supreme Court that was the most concerned about going about things the right way, um, come hell or high water. And so that's why I mourn his passing, and that's why I hope the person that's nominated to uh, replace him will be someone who deeply cares about, like you said, abstract thinking means and ends and process, not just results. And so that's my takeaway. Don't forget the mean. Don't forget the mean. Look, there we are. There we are. So um, what do you want to talk about next week? Oh gosh. Can we do, um, can we do oppression tokens or oppression Olympics? We can do the oppression Olympics. Okay. I, I like oppression Olympics. There's a lot of javelin throwing. <laughs> yeah. There is. So next week we'll be bringing you an episode on the oppression Olympics. It's basically ranking who's the most oppressed in society. And Nick's going to really um, kind of be our guide through the maze and the swamp of, of how this rising generation uh, apportions um, credit to people based on their identity and based on their struggles. Um, but uh, for now, this has been uh, SCOTUS. Episode 19 of The Mean. Uh, I am Ryan. And I'm Nick. And uh, you will hear from us next week. Bye. Bye.